Hello, my name is Yuli Bayraktari, and I'm the president and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. On May 9th, we co-hosted the Ash Carter Exchange on Innovation and Technology. We are excited to share with you this collection, the full audio of keynote addresses and panels from the entire day of the event. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Lynch, and I'm the Senior Director for Defense for SESP. I'd like to thank Chris Taylor for his demo, and then say that I'm honored to welcome our next speaker, General Mark Milley, the 20th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nation's highest-ranking military officer, and the Principal Military Advisor to the President, Secretary of Defense, and National Security Council. General Milley has served in multiple command and staff positions over the course of 42 years in eight divisions and special forces. Prior to becoming the chairman, General Milley served as the 39th Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. General Milley, we're thrilled to have you speak with us today. Thank you. I know I'm uh, the last of a long line of distinguished speakers today and panelists, and I'm following a, a great uh, techno demo. Uh, so I will try to keep these remarks uh, on time. And I know that I'm the only thing between you and a, a rousing reception here following that. But I do want to uh, say that I'm personally very humbled uh, to be invited to do this. Uh, I knew Ash Carter quite well. And Stephanie, uh, I want to thank her publicly uh, for her support to Ash over the years. Uh, she is an example of resilience and bravery and courage in the face of some very difficult times. And, and Stephanie, thank you for your leadership. Uh, as well as for Ash, and I'll talk more about Ash in just a second, but Stephanie, thank you so much. And for, for Justin Lynch, who uh, just uh, introduced me, I want to thank him for 15 years of consecutive service in the United States Infantry after graduating from a technical school in the Hudson uh, at West Point. Uh, he did a great job uh, in peace and war, uh, so Justin, thank you for your service, and thanks for what you're doing now in, in, the, uh, in the world of commercial innovation. So uh, thanks very much. And I want to thank both your bosses, uh, Yuri and uh, Elbert, uh, for putting this on, uh, for putting it all together. Uh, this wouldn't be happening without your leadership and the collective organization that you represent. Uh, and I thank you so much. And I hopefully will meet the intent of this being the first of many uh, on an annual basis. So I think uh, Bob Work may be out here somewhere. I can't see because of lights, but uh, if you're here, Bob, thank you for being here. And Michelle Forner might be here. I don't know if she uh, had to leave or not, but uh, thanks both of you for uh, being here. I had a great privilege of working very closely uh, with Secretary Carter on many, many occasions uh, over the years. And I can attest to you uh, that he was a great patriot, a real patriot, uh, and a great American. And uh, last year, last October, all of us, uh, this country, uh, each and every one of us in this country lost a transformational leader, a friend, and a, a champion of selfless service. And the first thing I think of when I think of Ash Carter was his human touch. Uh, he was, of course, a physicist, a scientist, but more than that, he was just a great human being. He was approachable and affable and got along with everyone. He was positive, he was upbeat, and he communicated especially well. He was a wrestler in high school and and I know that that caused him back problems later in life, and he would walk up and down the halls of the Pentagon to loosen up his back, but he also had an opportunity to manage by walking around, talking to people, 
in every office, regardless of who they were. He interacted extraordinarily well with soldiers, all of us, from private to general, and he looked at people for their inherent worth and value. He was incredibly humble on top of all of that. He was the exact opposite of hubris, which we see way too often in public life. He knew a lot, but most importantly, he always recognized what he did not know. He was never motivated by power for its own sake, and he insisted on using his power to help others. He was a committed public servant, selfless in so many ways, as you heard so many speakers say today. In short, Ash Carter walked with kings. He served with heroes, and yet he always kept the common touch, to paraphrase a famous poem by Kipling. His physicist background meant he was smarter than the rest of us in every room of the Pentagon. He liked to do calculus problems, which I always thought was kind of weird, in his spare time just for fun. I had a very different opinion of fun. And while I was in the half of the class that made the top half possible, <laughs> Secretary Carter was in that 1% that made the bottom 99% of us realize what was achievable. Ash Carter's decision-making was always motivated by the care and safety of the men and women in uniform. He was incredibly talented at cutting red tape and spending, speeding up the bureaucracy in order to improve the lives of our soldiers, our sailors, airmen, and Marines. Secretary of Defense Gates had the vision for the development of the MRAP, the armored vehicles that proved critical to protecting troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it was Ash Carter. He is the one who made that actually happen, and I was witness to that. His action, the action of Ash Carter, saved American lives on the battlefield, to include my own. And perhaps his greatest legacy is a sense of urgency for the U.S. military to adopt new technology, to accept risk, and to think of creative solutions to our wicked problems, and hence this conference. Secretary Carter was forward-thinking. He was always talking about generative AI, while most of us were just trying to figure out our palm pilots. He was the rare person who could understand and speak to both the science and the policy of new technology. In fact, most of us as mere models needed someone to explain what ChatGPT is and how to use it and why it was important. And Ash Carter knew all of that and he knew it easily. And in fact, he may have invented it. His far-reaching vision and relentless pursuit of innovation reshaped the direction of our military, making us more agile and nimble so that we could face down the challenges to come. And what drove Ash Carter's sense of urgency? I believe, just one man's opinion, that Ash Carter instinctively understood that we are in the middle of the largest fundamental change in the character of war throughout all of human recorded history. And he also understood that the stakes were enormously high. At the end of the day, it was about preventing great power war and preserving the rules-based international order that had maintained the great power peace for the last 80 years. For the past eight decades, this system of rules has helped to prevent great power war. There have been smaller wars, to be sure, and terrorism and limited wars and guerrilla wars. But no one in this room, in fact, none of us in uniform in any nation on earth, have lived through a great power war. 
From the beginning of World War I in 1914 to the end of World War II in 1945, 150 million people were slaughtered in the conduct of war, in the conduct of great power war. My parents fought in World War II. My father hit the beach with the 4th Marine Division at Kwajalein and Saipan and Tinian and Iwo Jima. My mother served with the Navy Medical Corps and took care of the wounded coming back to a hospital in Seattle. My uncle, my father's brother, was hitting the beach at Normandy when his brother, my father, was hitting the beach at Saipan in the summer of 1944. It is difficult for us today in this room to imagine the kinds of casualties that come with great power war. 1.2 million American troops, roughly the equivalent of today's total active duty force, fought in a single battle of the Meuse-Argonne in World War I. Among them was my father's uncle, who was wounded as part of the 26th Yankee Division from Massachusetts. The Meuse-Argonne was the largest battle in American history. The battle began at the end of September 1918 and ended on the last day of the war on 11 November. In this six-week period, 26,000 Americans were killed in action. 26,000, over an area roughly 24 miles, or about the distance from here to Dulles Airport. And we, the Allies, advanced all of 10 miles. 37 years later at Iwo Jima, where my father landed, there were 7,000 Marines killed and 34,000 wounded in only 19 days. And those are just American casualties. In World War II, the Soviet Union lost 40 million, China 30 million, Germany 15 million, Japan, France, Britain, Italy, all devastated, as well as many other countries. And then there was the institutionalized murder of 6 million Jews and gypsies and gays and disabled and the elderly and anyone who Nazi Germany determined were of no value. 150 million people in 30 years between 1914 in 1945. Add in the potential use of nuclear weapons and you quickly realize how devastating a great power war can be. And Ash Carter understood that. He understood that in a very deep and profound way. He understood the cost and understood the consequences of great power war. And as a physicist, he also understood the horror of nuclear weapons. And as a scholar, he had an incredible understanding of deterrence theories from the Cold War. In fact, he may be one of the very last scholar statesmen to ever serve in the highest echelons of our government. Ash understood that at the end of World War II, the United States led the victors in setting up the rules-based order to prevent another great power war. And of course, one of those allies, the Soviet Union, decided they didn't like the rules, and they set up another world order called the Warsaw Pact, and that collapsed between 89 and 91. And the rules that the U.S. helped to set up have been governing this world ever since. But now we can all see that that order is fraying. It is not broken, but it is being stretched. And Ash Carter understood that. China is looking to revise the international order in their favor. They want to be the regional hegemon in Asia within the next 10 years. And they want to exceed the U.S. military global power by mid-century, by 2049 to be exact. The People's Republic of China are on the path to potential confrontation with its neighbors and the United States. Russia is at a very dangerous turning point. While China is a rising power, a revisionist power, 
Russia is a declining power or a revanchist power. Russia wants to go back to the past and back to when they had an empire. A little over a year ago, we all witnessed Russia illegally invading the sovereign nation of Ukraine, an unprovoked act of aggression, an invasion that undermined the so-called rules-based order. And that war now is entering its 15-month and remains extraordinarily dangerous. Both China and Russia have the means to threaten our interests and our way of life. But we must keep in mind that war with either is neither imminent nor inevitable. And we must continue to deter a great power war, which was the central purpose of Ash Carter's professional life. That is what drove Ash Carter. And we will continue to deter a great power war through readiness, which was one of the first principles of Ash Carter. It is readiness in the future, otherwise known as modernization, that Ash Carter recognized and he understood that we were at an inflection point in human history where we are experiencing a fundamental change in the character of war. The nature of war, as Clausewitz tells us, is immutable. It's not going to change. It's a political act. It's a decision by humans to impose their political will on their opponent by the use of organized violence. It involves friction. It involves fear. It involves agony. It involves confusion. That's the nature of war. However, the character of war the how, where, when, and with what weapons and technologies wars are fought, that changes frequently. But it only changes fundamentally once in a while. And we are in the midst of one of those fundamental changes. History has taught us that nations that are able to successfully combine new technologies are able to create potentially decisive military advantages, especially at the beginning of a war. The most recent major change my most recent fundamental change in the character of war occurred between World War I and World War II, where we saw the introduction of mechanization of wheel vehicles and track vehicles and airplanes and tanks, air power, all tied together with communications that were wireless, the radio. There were other technologies to be sure, but these three were the drivers behind that fundamental change in war in the last century. And every country had those technologies. The United States, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, all the countries had those technologies. But the country that initially combined them to greatest effect, unfortunately, was Nazi Germany. They took these technologies and they combined them into a way of war, the German way of war, a way of war that allowed them, allowed the Wehrmacht to overrun Europe in 18 months. Eventually, the combined industrial strength of the United States and the Soviet Union with our allies overcame them. But for 18 months, Nazi Germany overran Europe. And as we all know, there were horrific consequences. We are in a comparative moment today. And Ash Carter was one of the few who recognized it very early on. He knew that we might not have 18 months to ramp up production and build up the military when the next great power war breaks out. He knew that we must be ready now, and we must be ready in the future. And that is the challenge. It's figuring out the best combination of technologies, integrating with the right training, doctrine, and organizational structure. And there are a few critical technology trends coming out right now, and perhaps in the next 10 to 15 years, that Ash Carter highlighted to us several years ago. 
He just had a demonstration on one of them, Assured Communications, Biotech, Artificial Intelligence, Smart Manufacturing, 3D Printing, all were discussed today. And I would propose that you look at it like this. First, principle of war is to survive. So if you're dead, you cannot fight. So in future war, you must survive. And we know right now that we are in an age of incredible surveillance, an age in which we have sensors that can detect anyone, anywhere, at any time on the Earth's surface, and most of the time, subsurface. We have the ubiquitous ability to sense the environment right now, today. And that will only increase as we move forward in the years to come. Just think of Fitbits and GPS watches in your iPhone. All of those are sensors today. Think of the space-based capability and the electronic signatures that everything gives. All of that are part of a sensing environment, unlike anything in recorded history. Our ability to see today and sense that environment is literally incredible. And what you can see, you can shoot. And today, we can shoot at further ranges with greater accuracy than, again, anything in human history. And we can do it with great precision. And now, with the advent of hypersonics, you can do it at speed. So you can shoot at long range with precision at hypersonic speeds. Add in lasers and other forms of non-kinetics. And you can see that our ability to see and shoot in and of themselves dictate a fundamental change in the character of war. Add in that the ability to move with a variety of technologies that are oncoming uh, to us right now. The most important, perhaps, is robotics. Robotics and unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned ground vehicles, and unmanned maritime vehicles are coming at us at speeds that are just unprecedented. I would tell you that in the next 10 to 15 years, we are going to see a pilotless or at least partially piloted Air Force, a sailorless or partially sailorless Navy and a crewless or partially crewless tank force on the ground. Robotics. And lastly, in a long list of technologies that are coming at us quickly, is perhaps the most powerful of all, the one that our, as Carter had us driving toward, which is artificial intelligence. And what does that give you? That gives you the speed of making decisions faster than your enemy. And we know that Napoleon beat the British on very many occasions, not the final one at Waterloo, but many before that. And he did it because he woke up at two in the morning, he was an insomniac, wrote his orders, gave them out to the marshals, the marshals were on their horses, and they were already attacking before the British finished their tea. So the ability to go through the OODA loop, the observe, orient, direct, and act loop, faster than your opponent, the ability to make faster decisions more accurately is a significant advantage in the conduct of war. Artificial intelligence and quantum computing will give that to the country that masters it for its military application. So to see, to shoot, to move, to communicate, these fundamentals have all been foundational to the conduct of warfighting for centuries. But now we are moving in to a different level of capability. And your military was directed years ago by Secretary Ash Carter 
to develop those technologies. And those are coming to fruition today. You're seeing that in the Army with a multi-domain task force and long-range fires. You're seeing that in the Marines with a littoral regiment. You're seeing that in the Navy with experiments in Fifth Fleet in the, cent in the Central Command area of operations with unmanned maritime surface and subsurface vessels. And you see it in the Air Force. These concepts were all initiated by Ash Carter. So again, our challenge is and will be to carry on his legacy, to take these new technologies and merge them into a way of war that gives us a tactical and strategic advantage over the adversary. We do this not to conquer, we do this to prevent war. And to achieve this, we must operate seamlessly in our joint force as Ash Carter knew that we probably won't have those 18 months. On day one of the next war, we must be fully integrated and able to maneuver through space and time at fast-paced, high-tech, rapidly changing environment, remaining invisible and in a constant state of movement. And to do that, we might prevail. But more importantly, to do that, if your enemy knows it, you'll deter. The way we do that, the method by which we do that, we are initiating the joint war fighting concept, and we're in the third iteration. The first iteration was drafted, briefed, and approved by, you got it, Ash Carter. The JWC is a description of how we intend to fight in the future, and it's going to turn into Joint Pub 1 in just another month or two. The future warfighter will also need to be skilled in breaking down the silos and work across all the various services to solve key problems. And as we look to operationalize that, we have to recruit a wide variety of talent that may not come from our traditional sources. Ash Carter was the first to break down some of those barriers. So the organizational structure we need to implement this, some sort of joint futures organization that will drive the future force. That too was an idea of two people, in fact, Ash Carter and Senator John McCain. Initially conceived by him, it turned into what became known as the Army Futures Command. And the same concept is being worked now for something that we'll consider a Joint Futures Command. And everyone in this room, if we want to deter a great power war, remember what Thucydides had told us. Remember that wars are fought for fear, pride, and interest. Thucydides remind us that to deter war, you have to remain strong, militarily, economically, and societally. Ash knew that. He knew that intuitively. And your opponent must see that, and they must understand that you have the will to use your strength. And Ash Carter understood that as well. Everyone who's in this room now, anyone who's watching this, and all of us that wear the uniform. We all must recommit ourselves to the vision of Ash Carter. We must always remember that we take our oath to the Constitution. Ash Carter never let us forget that. He was deeply committed as a true patriot, a man who understood the idea that is America, the idea that it doesn't matter if you're male or female, black, white, Asian, or Indian. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or famous or common, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Muslim or Jew, or you choose not to believe at all. Ash Carter knew that this military was open to all Americans, 
and that none of those identifying characteristics matter. What matters was your commitment, your talent. What matters is that you're an American. What Ash Carter cared about was your merit, your skills, your knowledge, your attributes. He understood it, and he lived it. And he knew that you'd be judged by the content of your character. He was committed to that idea of America. Ash Carter was someone that we all should try to emulate. All that he stood for is what we should recommit ourselves to, the idea that is America. That is what Ash Carter had as his North Star, and it should always be our North Star. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me here. It's a great honor to pay homage to a great American named Ash Carter. Thank you. Thank you.